This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Good morning, good morning. Here we are in the Manly Warthog Command Center, in the cave here, if you will, inside the Melton Law Studio. Melton Law, our big supporter here, is a full-service legal firm with the only official law firm partner of the Florida Gators, who managed to get back into Victory's column here. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Melton Law, nor the Gators, back down. Love the Tom Petty song, of course. Uh, you may not have heard it there at the game, but it's, it's really splendid. And, of course, protected 24-7, 365 by crime prevention, our good friends, cpss.net. Check them out and check out the mugshots. And patronize our sponsor, for crying out loud. Go to Style Cuts and tell them that uh, Ward Scott sent you from the Ward Scott Files. Say hello to David Ratliff there. Uh, go to, if you want to take up some safe uh, shooting practice, you want to go to GTR Range. And uh, we will put you in the hands of Bennett Latimer, who will give you the best instruction, the best safety, and uh, best training. So you'll be uh, in great shape if you go to shoot GTR. Good, good friends of ours for a long time. I shoot there with my buddies, and uh, we are safe and uh, practice the best practices we can possibly practice. Uh, on the spot cleaners, drop in there. The wonderful people, uh, they support us through thick and thin. Can't say enough about them. R&R construction is great, it's particularly if you have a, a fire or something. They really specialize in rebuilding and putting things back together for you. So um, those are just a few of the comments here this morning. Uh, good morning, everybody checking in. Uh, Going to spend, of course, a little time here in Coach Hogg's locker room, as I traditionally do on Monday morning. And I'm going to cut right to the chase and say, uh, I'll get to the Gators in a minute, who kind of a ho-hum game, but... The big story in the NFL right now is a paradoxical story. And uh, let's face it. Let's put this thing in context. The NFL, as Jason Gay has written, uh, marches on. Life marches on with the NFL. NFL is not getting smaller. It's getting bigger. It just had a game across the pond here, if you will, in England. Uh, Started at 9.30 on a Sunday morning. Normally that would be church time for people but now you know they've gone to this other uh, viewing if they've watched this and you know it's a time difference so um but let's talk about what football really is it is collision based it's played with speed and ferocity i I wrote a novel about it based upon my coaching experience and uh, sold it twice once to viking press uh, I was very proud of that. Um, sold it, uh, same outfit that um, published One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey, who later became a friend of mine. And uh, they kept the novel, worked with me. But I got to tell you, I was a lopsided kind of talent. I had a tremendous amount of talent, as you can tell, to tell a story, 
But I didn't know how to connect all the material into a long story uh, that is a novel. And I struggled with how to put that together and worked on it. And, and Viking Press flew their vice president down here to uh, talk to me. And it was kind of like I knew he was saying something, but I just wasn't mature enough as an artist to know how to put what he said into practice. So they sent the novel back. They gave me a $5,000 advance, if you will, in 1972. All right. And it was my first novel. And um, man, I tell you, it was really heady to be up at Mount Olympus with the great publishing houses. And then the book lay, uh, lay around in a drawer for a year. And then I got a call from the man um, uh, who was the senior fiction editor at Atlantic Monthly, uh, C. Michael Curtis, who also was the fiction uh, instructor at Harvard. And he had read my book and he wanted Atlantic Monthly to publish it. Atlantic Monthly publishes only one novel, uh, first novel a year. They pick mine. I wrote the D dust jacket uh, cover for it and worked with Mr. Curtis. And at the last moment, the, the monthly magazine's books were published by Little Brown. And Little Brown says, well, we've had another couple of books come out on that subject, so we're not going to devote any money to that subject. So the book, once again, did not get published. I got to tell you that it's prophecy. I mean, I saw right down the barrel on the field, in the huddles, in the locker rooms, in the weight rooms, in the coaching rooms, exactly what we're doing. We are fundamentally back to the Roman days of fighting in the big amphitheaters to the death. Now, we don't fight totally all the time to the death, but we've been known to have people die on a football field. We've been known to have people permanently injured on a football field, and if it doesn't show up, right away. It can show up in middle or later life, the violence and the ferocity of the collisions. And we teach it. We, we, that's what we do. We play it and teach it that way. And there's no pulling punches. Uh, we teach tackling to hurt you. Now, it's been cleaned up somewhat. There's no more helmet to helmet and no more crackback blocking and all these kind of things. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we go after each other. And the place where I was associated had a reputation of being so tough a team that you might beat us, but you wish you hadn't because we're going to beat you physically. And we taught our players to believe that the fourth quarter belonged to us. And the only difference was we were just man on man tougher. And we played and worked our players to be tougher. We put them on rope, rope climbing beams. We dug a pit. Well, the PE troublemakers dug the pit and dug the pit outside the locker room. And we could get our whole team in the pit at once. But what we do is we would throw people in there and have them fight. And then the guy who was still in the pit and had thrown everybody else out of the pit during the brawls was the toughest kid on the team. We did that all. We did that quite frequently. Uh, I, I, you know, we had a saying, what goes on here stays here. We really don't want the civilians, the public to know what it is that's gone into the training of what they're watching. So we have people now in comfortable dens, drinking liquor, 
eating food, slapping each other on the back. Ha, 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 har har har. Hail well, fellow. And the women are always doing their hair up and falling and raising cane. And down on the field is a very serious situation going on. And make no uh, mistake about it. We are going to hurt you. We're going to beat you. And if we don't teach you that, you're going to get beat and get hurt and lose. So this is a, by design, a collision-based game. It's the only game like it where it's this, these helmets that we collide with are really weapons. They're like a concrete block on your head. Um, the, um, we, you, you lead with that. I mean, there's just no question about that. Now, I titled my book Stadium. Now, stadia was usually in the Roman Greco world, the measure of the man. Stadium became the place where the people came to watch the measurement of the man. So I call the book Stadium, and uh, it was where we all come in our various levels of affluence and comfort to watch the violence and to applaud and complain about the violence if it's not successful. It's a very paradoxical situation when you go to a game. Let's just take Florida Fields. So everybody knows about it. And you see the, the you know, guys up top uh, on the, the – Above the press box, they have their own elevator, and they, they of course, eat high on the hog, as we say. You have the guys over in the gator dens and the end zones. They eat high on the hog, spend enormous amounts of money to do what? To spectate the violence. There's no other way to call it. And so we are thrilled to watch this. We, we all know the deal. It's only a matter of time from once that whistle blows to when somebody gets carted off. We know that. That's all part of it. It's part of the gladiators. So the optics are really quite often rather frightening and terrible. And I'm going to concentrate on what the NFL is concentrating on right now. And that's Tagio Valiola. Um, this kid, ironically, before this last game where he was seriously hurt, had all the pregame press and exposure devoted to him. And all the guys said, oh, the Dolphins are going to go as he goes. And they interviewed him and talked about him. His father groomed him from the time he was eight or nine for this activity. And, you know, that was that was the way it works. Even with softball players, girl players. I know of a father whose daughter played for the Gators, was recruited and played for Tim Walton. They had a file on his daughter when she was nine years old. They started watching and recruiting her. So imagine what it is where we now have extended this to the name, image, likeness. We've extended it to the uh, transfer portal uh, in the pros. We've now extended it over to Amazon and we're streaming it. We're taking it across into Europe. Um, and, the, and the NFL simply can't help itself. It cannot stand still. It cannot get smaller, nor can those of us who watch it. We always are willing to spend more money. They go up on the den rental. You go up and you pay more. What are you going to do? What are you going to do if you don't do that? Are you going to go somewhere to the museum? Are you going to go to the botanical gardens? My God, you're not going to do that. Now, recently, the NFL reached a billion-dollar settlement with former players over concussion-related issues. This is not ancient history. 
So uh, we re- meanwhile, we've added a 17th game to the season, and the players have even supported that. Uh, we've got this Thursday night football, as we mentioned, with a lucrative new deal with Amazon. Amazon, the guys who deliver your packages to you. We got this stuff spreading out under the doors of homes and seeping through the window seals. It's everywhere. You cannot get away from it. More of it, not less of it. You know, I wrote the book in 19... I tell you how it started. I was telling stories to Harry Cruz. And I said, Harry, I said, you won't believe what we did on the field today. And I described just one thing that we did called the gauntlet, where you had to go through that gauntlet or you were not going to be a man. And that gauntlet was where everybody got a crack at you. I described Bull in the Ring for him. Man, he said, you got to write those stories down. So I wrote those stories down. And the rest is my struggle to learn the craft to put them together as a novel. But this whole thing, and back then I had a lucrative $5,000 to me in 1972 for a first novel that was never published about this madness. I'm like, come on. I mean, something which I was very good at, by the way. I, could, I, I, could, I asked the head coach one time, why he let me make the last speech before the players ran out on the field. And he said, because these guys will run through a wall for you. And they would. I could get them to run through a concrete block wall. I don't know what it is. It's just a fervor that you build up. So now here we are with Tagliola. And I'm just going to read you some of the things that are going around the NFL about this right now. Of course, if you watched the game, you saw him get hurt. He got toted off. He said it was his back. But here's the issue. What is gross motor instability? What does it mean? How do you diagnose gross motor instability? Is that a cerebral injury or is that some sort of temporary back injury, as he claimed it was the first time? Uh, Now we have got a new rule that's just come out. Uh, this weekend, as I understand it, about based upon uh, this uh, concussion for this young man, and there's new concussion protocols. Now, here they are. Doctors will no longer have the leeway to clear a player to return to a game if he demonstrates abnormal balance. All right? There you go. Uh, you're going to have to really search to determine the neurological source of the instability. So any abnormal balance, stability, motor coordination, dysfunctional speech is going to be considered automatically a neurological issue. Now, I got to tell you, buddy, we had collisions on the field where I wrote my book. I mean, guys saw double and triple and we didn't stop. I mean, he, and, you know, I remember one of the phrases. How is he? Oh, he just give out some. I sat there and thought, What? The guy see him double, he ain't more, he's more than give out some. So this is just the way it went. Uh, ataxia is a term. If a player is diagnosed with ataxia by any club or neutral physician, uh, he's going to be subject to this new cr- concussion protocol, and he will not be able to return to the game. Now, uh, you're going to assume that these signs of ataxia are related to a brain injury. And so they're going to make the protocol now very conservative. Now, let's talk about two worlds we have going on here simultaneously. We have a game becoming more ferocious, 
becoming faster, becoming more collision-oriented. At the same time, we have these prohibitive pr protocols put in there for neurological damage. And you see, you scratch your head and you say, well, what's that about? Well, let me tell you what it's about. The guys who love that game, you could not keep them off that field, notwithstanding collisions and concussions if you tied them to a fence with a, a bull rope. They would, they love it. They love the collision. They love the violence. These are strong, tough guys who committed this. Don't mind. They don't mind it. Okay? They don't mind it. They're not going to go over and play baseball. They're not going to go over and run track. They're not going to play basketball. They're not going to fence. You know, they're going to plow into you and try to run over you. And you conversely, you're going to try to stop them. So paradoxically, we have a conservative protocol for neurological damage, but we have, uh, uh, and Rick Reichart is a, a good buddy of mine. He played baseball, as you know, sports hero, also played the football. And he says here, as I'm looking, the average NFL player does not make age 60. Um, and Rick knows. I mean, we've talked about this and some other friends of mine who uh, we are old timers and we get together in kibitz once in a while. So um, this, is a, this is a situation that what I'm trying to suggest it to you is the violence and the speed and the quality and the pace and all that increases and the danger does at the same time. And they don't seem to mind the danger. So was this at the time uh, an injured back or was it in a neurological situation? Now they're going to err if this protocol is actually applied uh, and they're going to assume that it is a, a, a concussion and it's going to take more than a weekend doctor to diagnose it. Um, the seriousness with this, which four days later, and I saw both situations, and I, I, I knew, and here's another thing they don't mention. We gun for the quarterback. These quarterbacks are phenomenal athletes. And if they're any good, well, generally my experience is, if you got a great one, he is the best athlete on the field, and he's the smartest guy on the field. Because he's got to process so much information, and he's got to make these decisions within three seconds, ideally. He's got to throw to spots guys that haven't arrived at yet, yet accurately. He, he is just usually a tremendous – he should be 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, he should have the high release uh, of the delivery of the ball. And he, he, he should be uh, able to see the field and all this business and contain all this information – if you look at the football plays, I used to laugh about this. You know, I was both a coach and a classroom teacher. And guys in the classroom would claim they couldn't, they couldn't understand sentence diagrams. And I'd say, are you serious? A sentence diagram isn't half as complicated as a pass route. And if they go out on that field and take that playbook and know that, but they can't come to class and know the sentence diagram. It's just a matter of what? Motivation. So this last time, a uh, young man was, you know, really seriously injured, taken off the court, uh, taken off the field in the stretcher with the neck restraint. We have seen guys with broken necks on that field who never, ever became anything but quadriplegics afterwards. We, we had an Ole Miss player that happened to. So this is a situation that right now the NFL is really trying to deal with. And here are the Here's the latest five-step process 
that the, pl- the players must go through before returning to the field. A fa- phase one, the player must rest and then limit or avoid physical and cognitive activities if they aggravate the symptoms. So he must uh, introduce limited stretching and balancing work and then move to light aerobic exercise. This is a, this is a big full, this is a big pro job now that's got to go back and start at the beginning of the yellow brick road. Phase two, gradual progress toward cardiovascular exercise, dynamic stretching and more balanced work. Neurocognitive and balanced testing can be administered. And if the results are interpreted to be back to pre-cushion levels um, or not, that's one of the phases you get out of. Phase three is increased cardio exercise. Start mimicking your sports-specific activity. Supervise strength training, uh, a little bit more sports-specific exercise, but no more than 30 minutes. Uh, Then phase four, the player can advance to non-contact football activities, such as throwing, catching, and running, and another round of neurocognitive and balance testing to confirm that those baseline results of the brain study are so. And phase five is a club physician must clear the player for full football activity, including contact. Then an independent neurological consultant assigned to the team by joint agreement between the NFL and the players union must concur with the team physician that the concussion has resolved. At that point, the player is clear to play in his team's next game. Well, there are doctors who have examined from what I can read this young man's neurological situation and have concluded that he should quit the game. He should quit the game now before he just doesn't have anything really to look forward to in a normal life in adulthood. Now, what's the downside of this for the Dolphins? You've already seen the Dolphins are not the team they were with with him. Uh, They're likely to have a a real problem uh, throwing their quarterback, throwing interceptions, uh, throwing deep and, uh, uh, you know, all that sort of business. And so there's a lot, there's a lot at balance here. I thought I'd put that in Coach Hogg's locker room. It's basically the core of what we do. We, on the one hand, want as tough and as strong and as vicious a collision as we can get. And at the same time, we want somehow, some way to say that we're not killing each other or permanently affecting each other. I don't know. I don't think really if you examine it carefully and look into the later ages, a couple of guys here have said on the show uh, in the chat line here that you can balance those two things, especially into later life. If you look at the guys in later life, knees and hips and brains, one of my buddies who played in the NFL for a long time, he played when head slaps were legal. So he's in the concussion study now as an adult because head slaps were just something that was done along the line of scrimmage. Um, so the roughing of the passer too, you know, you don't want to put a jacket on the guy as you do often in practice and have him be a no-contact person. That's not going to help him. He's got to stand in there 
and be able to take the threat of the contact and be clear-minded. There's some really good ones that can do it. Aaron Rodgers can do it. It's probably, if you really look at Rodgers day in and day out, he's probably the best at it. He knows how to get rid of the ball. He sees the field. They pay him an enormous, the king's ransom for him to play. Uh, he very rarely gets sacked. You know, he does. And now, conversely, what the teams are learning to do is go out and spend a lot of money on defensive players. Because one of the ways you can deal, that you can uh, uh, negate the power and, and a, a talent of a great quarterback and his receivers is to just have a ferocious uh, rush on the quarterback. And you're beginning to see that. You're beginning to see a, a bunch of big bucks spent on big, fast, strong, agile linemen who can get to that quarterback or unnerve him. And that's their job is to get there in collision with him. And so that's where the super interest is, I think, going to develop. Can the NFL, and then, of course, you've got to get the offensive lineman who can protect him. So it is going to raise the ante. Because if I were a football coach in NFL, and these quarterbacks are as good as they are, first of all, you got to make sure you don't get them, let them get around the end, and then rush them and unnerve them and get there quickly. Maybe you got a chance. And we've been seeing it yesterday in some lower scores by some of these teams. Those scores were a little bit lower, uh, a little bit more of a struggle right up to the end. I think it was because of the great defensive line rushes. So, uh, so you know, uh, this, is, um, uh, this is the world we're living in. And uh, as far as the Gators, I'll spend a few minutes on them. The jury's still out on them. And nobody really knows what to make of them. I hear so much conflicting opinion about Richardson. One thing he did do that sort of um, saved him, if you will, is he threw that pass to the corner of the end zone in the south end zone right there towards the end of the game. That was a very – he rolled out and hit that receiver. That was a good play. But he did a lot of lousy plays too. And there's all sorts of curiosities about his cerebral ability his ability to see the field and make decisions. And some say, oh, well, he'll learn that, he'll mature, he'll get that down. Others say, well, his first instinct is to run. He'll never be a pocket passer. Um, It's just going to, you know, you just have to wait and see. It looks as if there's some curiosity about the backup quarterback, so they don't look all that bad. So we're not in as bad a shape as we might have thought we were if if Richardson were to get hurt. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of an interesting and Tian obviously is a good runner his brother is a good runner for the Jags but the Jaguars lost and, you know, I, you know, they, they lost they didn't have any offense and you just kind of wonder about that so um, and they still got a lot of empty seats there in the Jaguar games so um, I don't know once again you know the ball, Tampa Bay won so that's only our that's our only state team that won because the Dolphins lost without the young man who's seriously injured. And, of course, the Jaguars lost for maybe they're, that's how good they are or bad, and that's their level. So thank you very much. Let me look at the chat, see if anybody's got anything going on here. Um, and, um, it's interesting here. Yeah, it's very tough to make it in the middle age as a, a former football player without a lot of banged up injuries and knees and some do some do um 
uh, it's a question of how long they played, um, partly, and um, um, you know that all that sort of business. So um, I guess we'll break here now before uh, our bottom of the hour. And um, Gators play LSU next weekend. That's going to be and it's going to be a night game, another iffy game. And um, the big thing is this Tom Petty day. And, and, you know, I taught Tom Petty in high school. So I'm sure if Tom were around, he'd be flattered. <laughs> he'd be flattered <laughs> that they got a Tom Petty day at a football game. <laughs> wow. I don't know. Uh, I, I know Tom would really be thrilled by that. <laughs> he never missed a class, though, at Ward Scott's. He loved it. He loved the class. Uh, he always listened during the poetry sections. So uh, maybe it's some of it paid off. We'll be back on the Ward Scott Files in just a moment. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, thanks. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. We'll have Ward's weather report now. Thank you to Wendell Lewis and Lewis Oil, 62 years of the business. Um, Chevron stations and even a lot of other companies also buy their gas from Wendell Lewis, Lewis Oil. Um, thank her very much for supporting us. And uh, the weather report 
the weather well you know there's something interesting going on right now in the weather i've seen it out here over the pasture rising over the san Francisco forest and that's this beautiful fall october moon uh put a couple of pictures of it on facebook some other people have done the same thing and i thought it might be fun to have a little moment of discussion about this moon and the weather and its relationship to farming and crop growing and the whole bit um, to back up a little bit, and I'm getting this from an analysis by AccuWeather, every full moon has several nicknames, and they often relate to occurrences that take place uh, throughout the month in which they rise, and such as the weather or the types of plants in bloom. So the hunter's moon uh, does not follow these traditional naming guidelines. Instead, it is forever hitched to the harvest moon. It always follows the full moon that rises closest to the equinox. And this year, the harvest moon rose 12 days before the equinox, which took place on September 22nd. So since the farmers had recently cleaned out the fields under the harvest moon, hunters could easily see the deer and other animals that had come out to root through the remaining scraps, of course, as well as the others, the foxes and the wolves, and that had come out to prey on the deer. And so the old farmer's almanac explained all this. I think the farmer's almanac is a fascinating weather source. Now with colder weather settling across the North American part of the country in October, and even the first frost coming not long into the fall. October's full moon has some other nicknames, such as the freezing moon and the ice moon. So uh, you'll be able to also see, according to the almanac, uh, a glimpse of Jupiter and Saturn, right, uh, if you look at the moon. And Jupiter is currently brighter than any star in the sky and will appear extremely close to the moon on Saturday night, and Saturday, Saturn will also be visible in the same region of the sky, appearing to the right of Jupiter, about the distance of two outstretched hands held at arm's length. So be also on the lookout for shooting stars um, that come along in the fall and the month of October, and they are streaking across the sky visibly pretty much in this month. So um, currently our rates are fewer than five meteors per hour, but this gradually uh, peaks up later in the month, which is interesting as well. So that is kind of an indicator of the moon. And, uh, you know, it is a particular relationship of activity that goes on uh, on Earth with the moon. The tides, and of course, even pointed out to uh, women's periods are corresponding with the tides and the moon. There's a lot of mysterious things that we don't really consciously think about, perhaps. Uh, but the hunter's moon is the first full moon of the fall, and it rises this uh, right about now. So keep an eye out on it. That's my weather report on the Ward Scott Files, thanks to Lewis Oil. Well, the title of today's show is uh, Exploding Heads. 
And exploding heads are taking place now at the University of Florida, where all of a sudden, I talked about this on Friday, uh, all these people in the faculty and the LGBTQWXYZ and all this business are protesting, uh, uh, bringing in a Republican senator who has never been here in, in the city or the state, come from Nebraska um, to be the president, who is not a Trumper, but he has voted for Trumper's policies quite often. And uh, he is, uh, um, of course, all for family with a mother and a father. So he's not approved of by the LGBTQWXYZ. I talked with a friend of mine who is in the admissions world of the university, and um, uh, I learned some, th- some things about the university demographics right now. About 60% of the student population at the University of Florida is female. Now, when I came here in 1961, there were seven males to every female. Conversely, there were seven females to every male in FSU because they had been the all-girls school. And while we hadn't been an all-boys school, we were pretty close to it. So that was the way it was set up then. Now, over time, of course, this has shifted from the seven and one when I was here to now we're 60% or over half of the students at University of Florida are female. And if you break down further the enrollment, um, basically you have at the university uh, very, very few uh, blacks. Women you do, but not males. And uh, this is interesting. This is just all data given to me by the missions department. Like, you, know, you can get it too. You can go get it too. Um, you know, and why is that? Well, the females really mostly are Caribbean black females. And, and so that leads to the question is, 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 is education of value among our own black people? According to the statistic at the university, no, a clear resounding no. And so, you know, once again, the university is going out on a concerted effort to recruit. But, you know, you can't you can't recruit if nobody wants to be recruited. Uh, So what we're left with are basically white females at the university, 60 percent, some Asians, but they're in the graduate programs. They are not in the main student body. Now, what the university is doing is shifting its emphasis as a, to a research institution because there they can go after the status of being on a footing equal with the research institutions like Harvard and all these places they allude to. The undergraduate student body is not really where you get your rankings from, it turns out. You're really getting your rankings from the graduate student body. So that is a lot to do with grants and legislative money directed your way to make that boat float. So where do you get that from? You get it from legislative influence. As we said Friday, we don't have legislative influence because we don't have that many legislators 
because legislators are based on population. But we do have a Republican governor. We have a Republican legislature. And we have a university sitting in the middle of a blue county that is one of two really blue counties in the state. The rest of the state is pretty much red and probably will remain red because of its attractive economic situation and its governor and its legislature. Now, antithetical to the blue, which wants to endorse the LGBTQI, the critical race theory and all this business, and there's no secret about it being crammed into the curriculum, you can go to Ward's hot bulletin board and see it's been crammed into the music department, crammed into ballet even. All the documents are out there. Go look at them. And what do you do? What, how do, you, what, do you, what do you do with that? You can't get money from the Florida legislature and the Florida governor if you're going to rub the LGBTQ stuff in their face because they're not for that. They're for sound families. They're for the whole diametrically opposed view, a mother and a father, 